Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Here is Dr. Tim McAllister. So when Tim comes back to the microphone, I would invite members of the audience to go to the microphone that's out there on the floor to ask questions. Um, please state your name. Keep your comments very brief. Limit yourselves to maybe one or two questions. And uh, I would ask, ask you to return to your seat after you have uh, placed your question. And we, we would like to keep the lineup of questioners going because um, these sessions are broadcast on the university radio station and, and uh, radio stations don't like uh, blank, uh, blank spots. <laughs> they call it dead air. <laughs> dead air, yes. <laughs> okay, uh, I would like to invite Dr. Tim Callister back to the microphone and we can begin the question and discussion period. Tim? Thanks, Graham. Thank you for your most informative presentation, uh, Dr. McAllister. I'm Ruth Alzinga, and I ha I'll limit it to two questions, but I have a dozen. Okay. Um, first of all, the 16 cases, how were they determined to be from beef E. coli? And my other question um, has to deal with when you took the cattle back to the research center and you talked about the levels dropping. I have a theory. Where are, I'm sorry, there's going to be one more question. Is it 5,000 cattle that were slaughtered a day about in XL? Did I hear that right? Uh, a little, little bit less than that. I think around 4,000. Okay. So, so I have a theory. Maybe we've got stressed cattle, and that's why the E. coli goes up. I mean, coming back to your research center and the, the, the things went down, I'm not being too facetious about this. I mean, does the size of a plant affect things, and, and do cattle get stressed? And can that have an effect on E. coli? Okay. So what, sorry, can you just read, I'll ask the first question. Oh, how did they know that? So I, I wasn't obviously directly involved in the verification of that, but I can sort of speak to how I think they probably did it. Um, I showed that picture of the genetic fingerprint. And there is a system that's actually global now where we submit those fingerprints uh, to a database and then they're examined. So I think they probably got an isolate out of the plant and they fingerprinted it. And they got an isolate out of the people and they fingerprinted it as well. That's probably going to change a little bit with some of the technology that we've got coming down the pipe. Uh, when I talked about how we want to figure out whether E. coli 157 that are with super shedders differ from each other, we actually have got some of the isolates from those animals that I showed, and we can do whole genome sequencing now. So we can sequence the entire organism and then compare different organisms from different environments to see what's different about their genome and what might be responsible for why that one bacteria lives in that environment. That's what they did with the 0104, that uh, uh, isolate that was uh, collected from the Germany outbreak was sequenced within a week. So that's how quickly we can do that now. Then your second question was, do animals get stressed? Yes, they do get stressed. The, in a, with a, when we're talking about a feedlot animal, uh, the most stressful time in the life of a feedlot animal would be when they first enter the feedlot. 
and that's when they're most susceptible to disease. So when we talk about disease in the cattle themselves, uh, probably about 80 to 85% of the disease that we see in a feedlot occur within the first 40 days that the animals enter the feedlot. That's also the time when they tend to have the higher levels of E. coli 157. And we theorize that maybe because they have a bit of a suppressed immune system and they're more likely to be colonized by organisms that are novel within the environment they're entering. Uh, there's some data that supports that, but there's not a huge amount of data that supports that. Can transport affect shedding? Uh, we have uh, a study, a very, it was, well, it was quite a big study, but when you're talking about these studies, you need a lot of animals to make big conclusions. And we had a small study where we uh, had animals at our 1-4 research ranch, which is in the southern corner of the province, uh, south of Medicine Hat. And what we did is we had two different transport times. We drove them around uh, immediately, which takes about a three-hour, three-and-a-half-hour trip directly from that ranch to our, our feedlot at the station. And we had others that we took on a little bit of a uh, tour of southern Alberta. And we drove them around for about 12 hours. And when we went to see whether or not if uh, there was more E. coli 157 in the ones we drove around for 12 hours, uh, it was higher, but we only had about eight positives out of 120 head to begin with. And they weren't positive for very long. So I think most scientists would say that transport should increase uh, the incidence of 0157 because of the increased stress. But that was completely contradictory to the data that I showed you with the super shedders, where we transported those animals to the feedlot and we actually penned them individually. And people think that animals, you know, are stressed in a feedlot. Well, actually, they like being around each other. If you want to stress a cow out, put it by itself. That stresses it out more. And that's how we penned them individually. So they were a bit stressed over that, I'm sure. Uh, we kept them on the same diet as they were getting in the feedlot, so the diet wouldn't be a stress factor. But then we started handling them. So we started running them through a chute and chasing them around to stress them more. And then we changed their diet after that. None of those things increased the level of shedding. And we thought it would. You know, we were trying to return them to be super shedders again. So it just shows how complex it is and how easily it's not, it's not figured out. Thank you. Yep. Knut Peterson is my name. Uh, Tim, thanks very much. Uh, my question is uh, related to which type of animal is most likely to contract the E. coli 057. Uh, is beef... Uh, the most likely, you will notice we had chicken today. Uh, yeah. What about the hogs and uh, pork? And it, it can be present in all of those livestock, so they can all carry E. coli 157. So it's quite possible that E. coli 157 is also universal within warm-blooded animals. Uh, we do find tend to find more in cattle than we do in some of those other livestock species. But then we look for it a lot more in cattle than we look in those other livestock species as well. But I think it was, it's generally accepted that cattle is, are the major horse, host of that organism. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Hi. My name is Tad Mitsui. Thank you very much for your presentation. I didn't understand everything because I'm not a scientific man. However, after the outbreak, I heard some people advise, advised us that it's better to go to small butchers, uh, small operators, instead of going to buy uh, meat from supermarket, etc., etc. How legitimate is this advice? Well, I think, I think you have to keep everything in perspective. There, as I said, there is no such thing as zero risk. So there's risk under all conditions. 
It's never zero. Um, the difference is is that it, not so much when we're talking about steak, but uh, if you're talking about hamburger, it's just the size of the batch and the degree of, uh, of its distribution. And in a larger plant, obviously, that degree of distribution is much further and the batch is much larger. So if you have a problem with that, you've got a lot more material going out of the plant than you do in the local butcher. The local butcher only uh, administers that product to a very limited size of the population. So when I said that not everybody gets sick when they get E. coli-157, the local butcher is testing that out in a very small population. The plant, like XL, would be testing that out if there was a problem in a very large population. So the likelihood of there being positive cases is just higher because of the amount of material that's being produced and the amount of people that are consuming it. My name is Frances Schultz. I would just like to thank you for an excellent presentation because you, you skated through a lot of material. Anyway, very quickly. Um, my question relates to whether there is any connect. Living beside a feedlot, I see how much manure gets spread on the field where the food is harvested for the forage for the fall. And I want to know whether there's a connect there between that heavy load of manure that's put on the forage crop and the food that the cattle eat. Thanks. Okay. Well, most, most of the uh, forage that's fed in a, in a feedlot is actually silage. So they put it in those big pits you see. And uh, those pits, the pH drops down to about 3.8 inside there when they make silage. So there's a lot of lactic acid produced. And we've done studies and E. coli-157 is killed under those conditions. So in silage, there wouldn't be a concern. The application of the manure to the land, uh, E. coli doesn't do very well if there's a lot of desiccation. So if it dries out, it will die. If it's exposed to sunlight, the UV light will kill it as well. Now, if you were to use, for example, a liquid product, uh, and pour, like liquid manure and apply that to a forage crop and then allow the cattle to graze it, it certainly could be a form of transmission then. And that would not be a best recommended package. Like we don't tell producers that they shouldn't be doing that, basically. So yes, it, it can be a transmission in, in that manner. But in the feedlots, because they use silage, it would be killed if it got in from there. And of course, in a feedlot as well, they have like the catch basin. And you know, there's, if you're talking about a modern feedlot, they have systems in place to try to minimize the microbes moving from that feedlot to the outer environment. Uh, and, and the manure is one way. The other way of lowering it in manure is through composting. Composting, the temperature and composting will achieve that 70 degrees Celsius. All of the E. coli, we've looked at that as well. E. coli 157 is killed in compost at about 50 degrees Celsius. And if you look at the recommended practices for composting, they recommend you achieve a temperature of 55 degrees. So if you're buying commercial compost, it's achieved 55 degrees Celsius. So all E. coli are killed. So composting is actually a very effective way of lowering uh, pathogens, both you know, uh, moving into the environment from manure. My name is Ralph Hemsel. Uh, it occurred to me <coughs> that uh, the first detection of this uh, presence of E. coli was on the American side <coughs> by American inspectors. Uh, yes, that's what I heard, yeah. yeah. So uh, how long would it have taken us to tie all of this together if we hadn't had that report from the American inspectors? Yeah, I really can't answer that because it's all of to what, you know, when would they find of a detected a positive within the XL plan. 
And so that's, you know, that's not really something I can answer because I don't know, you know, I'm not familiar, I'm not involved in the inspection side of things, right? So I don't know the frequency of sampling or those kinds of details. But Ted will, when Ted comes next uh, week, he'll be able to address a question like that. Yep. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. I was struck by the Premier's almost instant dismissal that this event was not one that required a public inquiry. Now, I can see many political aspects to not having a public inquiry, but from a scientific or technical perspective, would, do you think that a public inquiry would bring more scientific and technical knowledge than would otherwise happen? Oh, that's a good question. <coughs> Whenever there's a public inquiry, you know, the first thing that I hear about that, first of all, any public inquiry is going to cost a heck of a lot of money. That's a given, right? So I always ask myself, what are you going to learn from that public inquiry? And that's the question I guess I'd throw back at you. Like, what, what, what do you think we'd learn? I sort of give you a rough outline, right, of what we know today. I find it difficult to see if we had a public inquiry, what new knowledge would come forward that would really cause us to change the practices that we should already be in place, and, and I really don't have an answer to that. I really can't think of anything. You know, we could discuss the irradiation. I suppose that's one thing that could be discussed, but there's a lot of data on that, and the issues around irradiation is also a consumer acceptance thing. You know, a lot of people think that the meat that comes out of a plant that has irradiation is radioactive like an atomic bomb. They don't realize that it's not the same thing. So, yeah, I don't know what would come out of an inquiry that would really advance our knowledge. I, I, I can't... If, if there was something that was obvious, I think, sure, we should have one, but, but I don't see it. Yep. Terry Shillington, uh, thank you very much for a great presentation, very factual and uh, bang, bang, bang. Um, if I heard you right, you, you said that regarding steak that marin marinating is one remedy for E. coli. So I just have a cook's question. Uh, what constitutes a uh, good marinate and what doesn't? <laughs> I, I'm not a cook either, so my wife actually does all the cooking. I'm too busy doing research. But um, well, you know, a, a lot of the spices that we that I talked about, pretty well anything that's in your cupboard, uh, acids like citric acid, all of those things are toxic towards E. coli one five seven. So if you could tell me what your recipe is for your marinade, I could tell you in there what's in there killing E. coli. Although you may not want to share that. It could be a secret, eh? Hi. Thank you. I'm Ivor Tannis from Picture Butte. Uh, thank you for your presentation. I had lots of questions, but all these technical, uh, scientific words, I can't remember too much. I just have two simple questions, actually three. Uh, can E. coli 0175-87 be killed by ultraviolet light? And the Warburton... E. coli outbreak was that similar to you know, the same strain we have here, and okay. uh, there seems to be an, uh, an E. coli strain that's called XL by the media. Maybe we can enlighten the media sometimes. Thank you. Yeah. So yes, E. coli one five seven is uh, killed by UV light. 
it's a matter of exposure time. So if you expose uh, it to for sufficient time to UV light, it will kill it. We use UV light like when we, our biosafety cabinets and that at work that we're using when we're working with this organism. We have UV lights on though, in those, and we turn those on to help decontaminate the, con the cabinets. Uh, is the strain that was in Walkerton the same as the strain that we have here? Uh, that's extremely unlikely. Uh, it is E. coli 157H7, but as I said, not E. coli 157H7 are the same, and I'm pretty confident that that strain that they isolated out of XL will be different than the one they had in Walkerton. And the final question, yeah, I, that was my first criticism and why I asked the question who had E. coli, right, is, is that uh, there's way too much of this just saying that all E. coli are bad, and they're certainly not. And the media's sort of glossed over that. Yep. Mary Seby, thank you very much, Dr. Tim, for an excellent presentation. Um, I would like to ask, on the consumer side, how many of these, if you buy a solid steak, have they put those tenderizing machines into them? I say a New York steak, you know, that you buy as a... Yeah. Is it just the cheaper cuts that they? No, I don't think it probably just applies to the cheaper cuts. It could go across. So that's a really interesting question. And what I heard this morning is that Health Canada is interested in the answer to that as well, and that they're looking at potentially asking the retailers to label the steak because I'd like to have that personally yeah. myself that label because I wouldn't buy steak like that. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I, I, I am a cook, <laughs> and I, and I would like to ask. Um, is the E. coli killed by alcohol, 13% in an average bottle of wine? <laughs> okay. Well, we don't, we don't use, we use more potent stuff than that. Uh, and we'd sooner, you're probably better to drink it than you are. So. But, um, you know, when you're talking about killing a bacteria, you always have to think about contact, Right. And things like organic matter or if it's hidden inside uh, the tissue or things like that, if it doesn't come in contact with that antimicrobial, it won't kill it. So that's why, like with the heating side of things, you're always sure about that if you achieve that temperature, right? So that's still the number one thing in terms of being able to ensure and achieve that zero risk I talked about. I said if you cooked it like that to 70 degrees, the risk would be zero, provided you don't contaminate it again after you take it off the barbecue, right? because you put it back on the same uh, uh, cutting board that you used when you cut it up to put it on the barbecue in the first place. So you always have to be thinking about that and, and that the, the, the bacteria, they're, they're potentially everywhere, right? So you have to take that approach. Yeah. My name is Frank Toth, Dr. McAllister. Uh, there are two vivid protestations, whatever you want to that to evolve from this whole trillion-dollar, billion-dollar shutdown. One was the, uh, the labor leader had complained that they're working them so hard, so fast, they have no time to cauterize or disinfect their knives and tools, whatever. Uh, plus, the other girl that used to work for the CFI claims that uh, the inspectors are not trained well enough, the federal ones, because Harper... Plus, the previous government's already cut a bunch of inspectors uh, uh, off off the meat line. How does that affect uh, the the shutdown? Would that you know would that be a, a, a good reason for a further infection? Well, 
you know, as I outlined in that continuum, any breakdown along that continuum can lead to an infection. So it doesn't really matter where that's taking place, the end result can be the same. Uh, with regard to the specifics of XL, I think probably Ted will be able to address that better. Uh, there are, you know, things to think about in terms of, uh, obviously we're getting foreign workers into work in those plants. Why are Canadians not working in those plants? You know, there's a reason why that's not considered the most desirable job and why Canadians are not, you know, lined up there to take over those, those types of positions. And so, you know, I think we really need to look at the big picture, and we all have a responsibility in the big picture. Uh, there's a reason why, you know, I grew up on a small farm. We had 100 head of cows. When I was a young guy, about 15, 14, we used to have our 50 steers in our self-feeder, and we could phone up the guys at the plants, and they'd come out and look at our cattle and bid on them and give us a price for them. Things got bigger and bigger and bigger. Pretty soon you phone up the guy and you tell him you only got 50 cattle to look at. He says, well, I'm not worth it. I'm not going to burn, you know, half a tank of gas to drive to look at 50 cattle. You know, I can drive down to this guy down here and I can look at 5,000 head and decide whether I want to buy them. So if you want to do something with those cattle, you take them to the auction mart and sell them. They'll end up in that big feed lot and then I'll take a look at them. So that's, that's the kind of things that's happened, and it's all about the price of food, and it has to do with the economies of scales. And as consumers, we all have a role in that, right? And, you know, producers, I don't think, necessarily have an allegiance to a feedlot. You know, they'll produce the kind of meat that we want. So if we want to have uh, small-sized uh, local butcher shops, and we're willing to pay more for that because of the labor and the things and the efficiencies that are not quite as high, and we'll pay more for the meat, they're quite happy to produce meat to go into those butcher shops. But you can imagine, if you're killing 4,000 head per day, how many butcher shops would we need when I heard some of the stuff? There's some guys that are saying, yeah, i got a, I got a small shop going here. We kill 15 a week. You know, So you'd have a butcher shop on every corner to match that, you know. So you have to look at the big picture and consider all these things. It's just not that simple. I'm Mark Gettle. I wonder if you know if the phages are uh, active within the intestine. And if so, would I be able to catch a phage that would destroy my good E. coli? Yeah, yeah you probably have already, Mark. <laughs> yeah, the phage are active in the intestinal tract. Um, we've done studies, and what we find is really it's like the predator-prey relationship, sort of the things you studied in biology between the, the, the rabbit and the lynx population, how the rabbits go up, and then the lynx go up, and then the rabbits go down, and then the lynx go down, and that just cycles like that. Well, we find exactly the same thing in the digestive tract. So if we hit a super shedder with those phage, we have a big drop in E. coli. Then we see a drop in phage, and then the E. coli come back up. Then the phage come back up, and it goes in that cycle like that. So the system is adapted, right? The objective is the system of an, of an ecological system is to go on. So you don't want to kill everybody. You leave a little bit there so that system can survive. And that's what happens within the intestinal tract. And we all come in contact with phage. Phage are actually the largest portion of biomass on the face of the earth. Uh, we just never see them. Yep. Hi, Mike. My name is Tom Kane, and I... First, I'd like to su suggest to SAC, but I guess I should write it down in the suggestion box that we should have a session on um, marinades. And <laughs> have a, a session just for the cooks, and you, you come along and bring your wife and figure out. So she does all the cooking, and we'll find out the best marinade to put on steak because I don't want to cook my steak till it, you know you can't get any flavor in it. But 
more more seriously, the people in Walkerton were interviewed shortly after this broke out, and they said, you know, what we the rest of Canada should learn from us about our water problem in Walkerton. And they said that the first maybe even two years after that, they were still playing the blame game. Who will we blame for this mess? And eventually they did um, get a few people and find them guilty for that. But um, are we past the blame game? You've helped me to understand the complexity of this today, and now I don't know if I can ask a good question on the blame game. Have we switched to solutions? And when will we know if they've got some good solutions and they've stopped playing, who are we going to blame? Yeah, well, I, I think the solutions are all already there. They just have to be properly implemented. And obviously, there was a problem in this plant. Uh, the reason for that problem, you know, I don't know what it is. Maybe Ted has a better idea of the things. I think I've talked a bit about the sociological things that have led to that. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, in, in terms of the system, we already produce safe food. And as I mentioned, like the, the levels of... As I showed even with the 0157, they're going down, right? How much of that's due to everything we're doing in the plants? I'm sure it plays some role. Uh, and, but we'll never get that to zero. So as an individual, you still have to take responsibility for your own food safety. Everyone has to. Because if you break down in that chain, uh, then you'll have the same problem. It doesn't matter what goes on. And you can spend millions and millions of dollars above you in that, in that pyramid I showed. But if you don't follow those basic properties of hygienic food practices, all that money will be for naught, right? And all that will do is increase the price of your food. So you have to think about those things. Yep. Are we allowed a second question? Yes. Yeah, sure. You, uh, you're the one that will cut me off when I cut. <laughs> We've been talking mostly about meat, uh, contamination of meat. Uh, obviously, fresh vegetables and stuff like that is also a uh, can be a problem area. How do you avoid, uh, for example, spinach is, was a, a problem in Europe, I think, last year, and uh, how do you, can you wash it off? Well, washing it will remove some of it, but it will never sterilize it, right? So there's always that risk. More of that would be handled in the practices of the producing of the vegetables themselves. So I would not be, like, irrigating uh with above-ground irrigation from a catch basin onto vegetables that I planned on consuming the next day. You know, things like that. As I mentioned, uh, there's lots of studies where they put the E. coli onto uh, vegetables grown out in a uh, mock vegetable garden, and exposure to UV light and desiccation in that will cause the organism to die, but there's a period of time that that has to take place. So you wouldn't want to do something like irrigate your vegetable garden with... Uh, water from a catch basin in a feedlot and then consume it the next day. So there, a lot of those practices are, are already in place. And usually when there's a problem, something's broken down in that system where somebody's made a mistake and hasn't followed those best management practices. Uh, Tim, um, we hear here in the media that about 1,800 products have been recalled. I had no idea that there was any, anywhere near this number of beef, different beef products being produced. Uh, are, are they all, have they all been subject to uh, different processes to come up with that many different products, beef products? 
Yeah, well, that that would be distributed through. You know, there's an, an, that that product goes out to a number of retailers, and those retailers put their own brand on it, and so that would change, it, make it a different product when they did that. Some of those are ingredients in more processed products as well. I'm sure of the 1800. Oh, I'm positive of the 1800 products that were recalled. Not all of those were infected, right? That was a precautionary. Uh, step that was taken for sure. Some of them may have been, but I'm sure they weren't all infected. So it just, I think, uh, emphasizes the way our, our industry is going and the way uh, we're producing food is that it's getting larger and larger, and that's no secret. We only need to drive around the rural areas, and you can find the abandoned farmhouses that are out there. Uh, that's happening, and that's, that's the way it's going because the economic conditions are driving it in that direction. And uh, and that will probably continue to be the case. It has been for the last, you know, it's been the direction for the last 35 years, uh, and probably will be continue to be the case in the future too. Yeah. It's just me back again when you talked about the cooking. Uh, if I'm cooking it, yes, I'll make sure it's well cooked. But what if you're not the one cooking? It's the rest, various restaurants and things. Do we have a good enough system to be sure that it's handled safely there? Well, I think I think there's there's training in there, and you know the fast food restaurants have had issues, and they recognize the economic cost that those issues have uh, caused their their sector, and so they've implemented a lot of those cooking procedures in that that those fast foods are directly targeted at food safety, and uh, where there's issues. Uh, if you look at their system, they have a very, it's almost like a, what we call a HACCP program. And, you know, it's, there's not a lot of freedom in how you cook a hamburger in McDonald's. They are instructed, this is the way you do it. You go step one, step two, step three, and it's done in that manner, and you follow those steps. And if you adhere to that, then you don't have any problem. And those are the same sort of approaches that are used in slaughter plants. We have all of these uh, mitigation practices in place. You apply this one, this one, this one, this one. Then the likelihood of risk is exceedingly low. So that's the same thing. And, and, and obviously Health Canada does inspections in that as well. And, and so, and you can still make that, you know, the same choice even as a consumer in a restaurant. You won't probably get the option here. But in the United States, you can still go to restaurants where they'll ask you if you want your hair, hamburger you know, medium rare or medium or well done. You don't usually get asked that question in Canada, but you can. But if you read on the uh, menu, you'll see a disclaimer down there. We're not responsible if you select to have your hamburgers cooked, you know, so that they don't end up in, in a lawsuit over that if you get sick. Yeah. Well, that, that pretty well wraps things up. Uh, thank you all for coming. And please join me in thanking Dr. Tim McAllister. Thank you.